Hi everyone, I'm Alice. I'm Dan. And welcome back to my birthday month. Three full episodes and one bonus episode all led by me. Woohoo! So this was a complete coincidence to begin with, but now we're running all the way with this. That's uh, just how this podcast works. That was exactly how it started. Exactly. So I hope you've had fun. Episodes of me nerding out over random subjects for the past few Fridays and uh, ending off today. As if I don't already do that twice a month. Yeah, well, that's just how it be sometimes, you know? This week's episode is a little bit outside of our usual STEM and history-focused niche and will actually be focused on Pink Floyd's The Wall. You liar, there's still like three more episodes in this series. Don't you dare try and make it seem like this is the only episode on this. Okay, fine. So it's outside of our niche until today. I think our niche is just like, ooh, this is interesting. <laughs> our niche continues to expand. Plus, you can consider it history. That is quite fair. It was uh, over 50 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. So, as you may or may not know by now, I am a pretty big music nerd. But it wasn't until last year that I officially got the chance to analyze some Pink Floyd, specifically, as you might have been able to guess, their album The Wall. And holy hell, I had been missing out. I could literally go on about this album for a full season's worth of episodes. I mean, with your plans, it seems like you're already there. I will distill this down to some incredibly fine points for today, alright? Feels like this time I got the abridged Les Mis in a book that was still, like, huge. I was just like, I don't think they know what abridged means. Until I learned that they cut out the parts with the French sewer system, and the problem it was instead with Victor Hugo, the writer of Les Mis. That's right, blame the plethora of sources that I found that wrote seven-paragraph essays on every individual song that I am now distilling into, uh, four mini-episodes. Well, four episodes for you. Was that pun intentional? Yes. I will kill you in real life. <laughs> Wait until after the episode. Wait until after the series, actually. So, No uh, promises. Pink Floyd is a band that basically needs no introduction. You see their Dark Side of the Moon t-shirts all the time in stores, with the prism splitting the beam of white light into a rainbow of colors. Yeah, I think I know that one. You probably also know their We Don't Need No Education mantra. I've heard my fair share of English teacher salt about it, yes. I mean, the only thing that comes to my mind when I think of this song is a video I'm pretty sure I did see through English class of We Don't Need No Education, followed by a stereotypical white English professor saying, Yes, you do. You just used a double negative. So that's about how it goes in uh, American classes, but <laughs> this We Don't Need No Education song is actually from The Wall, which is another Brick in the Wall Part 2. Fun fact, I actually used to despise this song because when said English teacher played it back in middle school, I, being an absolute nerd with no clue about the song's context, which it was supposed to be taken in, I was ready to fight these people about the importance of the education systems. I have obviously now changed my views, given that I am here talking about it, and I actually couldn't agree more with this song. <laughs> I'll get back to that in a bit. But first, a bit of history. So Pink Floyd was formed in 1964. It is literally older than my father, which is insane. It was initially part of what was called the psychedelic music scene. Long story short, psychedelic music was a style in Britain and America primarily that drew on the hippie movement, or counterculture if you're a serious nerd who writes academic papers about this stuff. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, isn't that the hippie mu movement? It absolutely is. It's just the fancy word that we like to use in classes. That sounds about right. 
This counterculture or hippie movement, in particular the music, used drug trip inspired visuals and was all about experimentation. Just like the Beatles! I think I heard they used LSD or something, and then they were also considered like some of the founders of rock or something, or like, they, there was something going on there where they were introducing new stuff. I thought they, I think they used like classical instruments in rock. That's an episode for another day, but long story short, yes, that is absolutely the case. And yes, progressive rock in particular started to use that Western classical style with a lot more of the instruments that you might tend to find in a symphonic section, rather than, you know, synthesizers and electric guitar. I'm a genius. Well, most importantly, uh, psychedelic music gave rise to, as I just mentioned, the synthesizer and the sci-fi sound that Pink Floyd became inextricably linked with. The band grew and changed over the years, and the psychedelic sound eventually morphed into a different genre. Progressive rock, or prog rock for short. Hmm. Now, prog rock was huge, but not very well remembered. I remember discussing the genre with my dad for the first time, and he had never heard of it. However, my dad had heard of the bands who were a part of it, or a lot of them anyway. Just to name a few, you had King Crimson, Yes, Genesis, Pink Floyd, Renaissance, Gentle Giant, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the creators of the quintessential prog rock song Tarkus. I might actually do an episode about Tarkus in the future. God, I love knowing nothing about something. So whenever I hear the names listed of a bunch of, like, actors or songs or whatever, then I'm like, wow, I've never heard any of these names before. Before my brain immediately deletes them from my consciousness. Prog rock largely came from psychedelic music, one of three main branches, again, a topic for another day, and it was basically the genre that quote-unquote legitimized rock. Take a bunch of college nerds from middle-class white-colored families in the London area who were cynical about the world, and usually incredibly good with their instruments, and you had yourself a prog rock band. Can I also assume that they were all white? Yes. Alright. I could also unpack the instrumentation and themes, but the main points you need to know in relation to Pink Floyd is that prog rock music often used a mix of electric instruments like the synth and appropriately named electric tar. Oh wow. I wonder what that, <laughs> what a big shock what I think that could be. I think it's a brand of saxophone, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it paired those electric instruments with Western classical music, down to including instruments like the flute or the lyre. The other main thing to know is that these artists were almost always trying to make a point with their lyrics, with a very notable exception of a few bands. Again, a topic for another day. But... This message was sometimes super convoluted and relied on looking at the instrumental arrangement, the musical inspirations, and even the album covers and the art to even hope to get close to a cohesive point. There was a reason why a lot of people consider prog rock to be very pretentious. Ah, so basically everything I hate about poetry. Exactly, and everything I love about it, but with even more mediums to make things even worse. Symbolism is already hard to spot. Poetry makes it worse. Having to consume more forms of media to understand something? Disgusting. I love it. I love prog rock so much. I was also the one kid who loved every single poetry unit. I didn't like poetry because I didn't understand it. That is fair, but I tried. Please, I don't understand symbolism. Time for me to teach you some lovely symbolism from Pink Floyd. Every teacher I've had has tried to teach me symbolism and none have succeeded. Maybe I will because I am not a teacher yet. So, this overarching message that was in a lot of these songs is what brings me to the final term that I want to bring up before we jump right into it. A concept album. 
Now this one is much simpler to explain. A concept album is basically an album that tells a story. I think I heard some K-pop groups do something similar, telling a story with multiple of their music videos, but honestly I don't know a lot about K-pop and the lore and whatever, it's just something I heard somewhere. And honestly, I'm fine with not knowing anything about K-pop. Like, I'm glad people enjoy it, but I'm fine staying very ignorant. I apologize on Dan's behalf to all K-pop stans watching this, and to pin yourself, that sounds like a reason for me to get more into K-pop. I mean, go ahead, man. Well, back to a few decades ago. In the case of Prog Rock and The Wall, the concept album here is a basically a collection of music that literally narrated the life and mental breakdown of a character so aptly named Pink. <laughs> Wonder where they got the name from. Oh, wow, I couldn't guess. <laughs> well. Is his last name Floyd? Compared to other prog rock bands, The Wall's songs are actually very good at conveying a pretty clear message, even if some of the exact details get a little bit fuzzy. Ah, so something that I wouldn't understand at all. I think you'd get a few messages. There's enough warplane sounds for you to probably guess what that's going on about. Yeah, but I think that I am also good enough to get entirely the wrong message from it. This is why I'm here today. Yeah. Another fun fact. This album literally tore Pink Floyd band members apart. If there's one name I want you to remember from this, it is Roger Waters. He Great, will... I will forget it immediately. This is why I will bring it up constantly. So, Roger Waters was basically the head of Pink Floyd and the mastermind of this entire album. But, the conditions were so stressful and this album was so complicated and some songs so controversial that some band members actually left after this. Mm. Which, I can't say they were the first prog rock band to have this sort of drama, but let's just say a lot of the Pink Floyd members got replaced over the course of The Wall and The Dark Side of the Moon. Alright. So... Now that you know a bit about the basics, which probably took half the episode for me to explain, let's get into a little bit of the wall. Oh, first half? You're giving yourself way too much credit. This is like max a fourth into it. Okay, when I initially planned it, it was going to be half, and then I expanded this into a four-part series, and it barely still took up a quarter of the script space, so looking at the timer now, my condolences strap in, this will be a long one. Yeah. So, I want to start off over 10 minutes in, <laughs> a few disclaimers. Firstly, I technically do not hold a music degree. I do have a lot of music training in various areas, but prog rock is only something I have studied about in classes, so I am not a seasoned scholar and the veritable true fact holder for this album. However, a lot of my sources are either direct interviews with Roger Waters himself, uh, mostly around the time when he was turning The Wall into a film, or from people who have dedicated a staggering amount of time and effort into analyzing these stuff. These people are me on steroids. <laughs> I'm, I don't want to meet them. I do. So obviously, the sources are all linked in our Twitter post about this episode and whatnot, but I do want to give a huge props to all the academics and hardcore fans who have literally made volumes of anthologies worth of analysis on this album alone. You know what? Yeehaw. Good for them. <laughs> Secondly, Pink Floyd did make a movie out of this. However, there are some substantial differences in the depiction of the narrative for the album versus the movie, so with a very few exceptions, I will be relying only on the song-related elements to back my case rather than the visuals. 
To be fair though, this is a non-video related medium, and since you're portraying it through it, there's something like, I don't know, poetic or something about like not using the visual medium. And it's probably also kind of hard to do the visual part without actual visuals. I mean, that is true, but that did not stop us from trying with our existential crisis ups. That's just how it be sometimes. We'll go a little bit easy on you this month. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, the wall is dark. Although I will only be lightly touching on uh, most of these themes, the main character's arc is literally building a wall of isolation, starting with his father's death in World War II, and the very problematic post-war British school system, going through his wife's and potentially his adultery, drug overdose, Nazi-bracing persona, and a suicide attempt. So this stuff is a very strong PG-13 rating, to be sure. But as a reminder, some of these songs were also literally on the radio. There's a lot of songs on the radio that, like, later on I'm like, oh, interesting. Blurred lines, anyone? <laughs> I would go with anything produced by The Weeknd. Uh, but yeah, sometimes I feel like those songs are almost more risque than the Pink Floyd songs from this album that actually did make it to the radio. Hmm. Furthermore, the symbolism of, say, the We Don't Need No Education song, or Another Brick in the Wall, is bloody horrifying, and yet here we are showing this and Lord of the Flies to barely preteens who are still eating chapstick in class. Is this a call-out to someone in particular? So many people. So many. Hmm. It's you know You and I live different lives. You and I were in the same classroom. I noticed nothing. To be fair, you weren't sitting directly next to those people, so that helped. I noticed nothing. That is also true. Now, just to continue on my point here, it is entirely alright if you can't handle any of these themes that I just mentioned, um, especially a lot of things about physical abuse and suicide, which I will be giving a warning about at the beginning of every episode uh, that I do for these. And I admit that I was a little bit disturbed watching some of this stuff, even the second time around. If you're sensitive to seeing the things, but not as much to hearing it, kind of similar to how I am, I guess, then honestly, just don't watch the videos referenced and continue on with your life. I would just recommend don't watch the movie, especially. Uh, live happily. <laughs> live happily and in ignorant bliss, and that is okay. Yeah, I live in ignorant bliss every day. I won't be going over the graphic depictions of, say, racism and homophobia and drugs or suicide in this one. However, I do want to mention that the songs inside one, which I will be covering today in particular, mention war, spousal abuse, and some gore and body horror for children, and physical abuse, particularly a little bit of kids, and if interpreted literally, basically child death. So, let's finally, over 15 minutes in, look at the first few tracks of The Wall. Yay. Be more excited about this. You're mandated to be here. I expect more enthusiasm. Yay. The Wall story is divided by record sides. For you young people out there, back in the land, before CDs, there Ooh. were magical discs called vinyl records. Wow, I've never heard of anything like this before. I know, it's a very niche thing, only I have the interest in collections of them. I'm so special. Clearly superior to CDs, these vinyl records could only hold a fraction of the song data. So, most albums anywhere near today's length would need to use one to two of these vinyl discs. Oh well... Or, if you wanted to fit Hamilton on vinyl, you'll need four discs, all sides. And I should know, because I'm one of those nerds who shelled out for it. Cringe. Yes, I listened to it enough to make the purchase worth it. Mm, fair enough. Anyhow, 
Vinyl discs have two sides, usually referred to as side A and side B, or side 1 and side 2. The notation depends on the artist. As a surprise to no one, Pink Floyd's The Wall was long enough to warrant two discs for sides 1, 2, 3, and 4. I wonder if you can guess how these episodes are broken up. Wow, what a shock. Well, this episode covers side 1. Sometimes I really wish that this was a visual medium so that the audience could see my face right now. It is very dead inside. I can tell you that much. Because we aren't even halfway through the script. Yeah. So, inside one, the main character Pink struggles with a multitude of issues, particularly with authority figures that become these first quote-unquote bricks in a metaphorical wall of isolation. The songs on this side are in order, In the Flesh, The Thin Ice, Another Brick in the Wall Part 1, the Happiest Days of Our Lives, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, and Mother. I'll only briefly review the songs and their motifs, since each song could be an episode in and of itself. Briefly, she says. Look, compared to the guy who wrote seven plus paragraph essays with visual and quotational evidence, I consider this briefer. You give Charles Dickens a run for his money. I'll take that as a compliment. It wasn't supposed to be. I've read enough of him to take that as a compliment. Now then, let's start at the beginning with In the Flesh. I should emphasize that there is, in fact, a question mark after Flash, which basically marks the uncertainty that the character Pink is born into, as well as a bunch of other things. And a lot of that does become apparent throughout the rest of this album, which I will be extrapolating on in just a moment. So despite being three and a half minutes long, In the Flash has very few lyrics. They basically introduce the audience to the chaos of Pink's character and give us a taste of the songs in the second half of the album, particularly side four. It also gives us the iconic opening lines, so you thought you might like to go to the show. The first four lines of this song are actually repeated in the side four song, In the Flesh. And yes, these two songs do share the same name, but by the time that we get to side four, there is no longer a question mark at the end of that title. Putting it in cinematic terms, this is basically like opening a movie on the climax or ending of the story, making the viewers wonder, now how did a character get into that position in the first place? Some movies, like Titanic or Inception, might start nearer to the end. Other stories, like The Divine Comedy, which you may know by way of Dante's Inferno, which is one of the three parts of this story, or the Iliad and the Odyssey, start in the middle of the story. So it's kind of like one of those things where it's like there's a scene and then it's like record scratch. Now you may be wondering how I got to this. That is precisely how it is. Yeah. It is a darker and a slightly older version of just that. This first song, In the Flesh, is also fun to listen to if you don't remember how it starts and really want a jump scare. Ah, this is me whenever I have a loud song that plays immediately after a soft one. Or whenever a soft song even vaguely changes. You start off with 15-ish seconds of what sounds like a peaceful accordion and wind melody, only to be bashed over the head by a much louder electric guitar. Hmm. Another fun fact is that this 15 seconds can also be found at the very end of the entire album in the song Outside the Wall. This beginning-at-the-end thing is not only popular in some movies, but for Pink Floyd as well. Mm. The last 30 seconds of the song actually fade out from the literal screaming vocals and the loud electric instruments to the sound of warplanes, gunshots, and a baby crying. Ah, so PTSD nightmare. Yeah, more than you know. Now, this has been interpreted as the imminence or ongoing World War II, which is one of the main themes of the album, and Pink's birth. We know for sure that it has to do with the character's birth in particular, since the next song, The Thin Ice, is literally a lullaby that a mother would sing to her child. 
You would also think that for such a lyrically short song, there wouldn't be much speculation or debate about what it means, and that this would probably be one of the shorter overviews that I could give. And you would be wrong! Overanalyzation is just the bedrock of any type of scholar. Oh, well, am I a scholar? No. If I didn't need you for this podcast, you'd be evicted from my household. Now then, there are, a, there are a few different narratives about what this song means. The first proposed narrative essentially states that this song represents Pink's birth, with the lyrics acting as instructions from either God or his parents or life itself for the kid that he had better be prepared for disappointment because life is going to give him a hell of a lot of lemons. Now, given how some of the songs in Sides 3 and 4 go, I would actually not be surprised if there was some sort of deitil figure in this story. I mean, I don't know if this man was religious or whatever, but if it was, then probably. The second proposed narrative is that this song is Pink quote-unquote birthing himself into the narrative, starting in media res, or in the middle of the story, as I was talking about earlier, just using the fancy name for it. <laughs> This makes you wonder, now how did this innocent little baby become a drug-addicted quasi-neo-Nazi? Hmm. The third proposed narrative is that this song is Pink recounting his entire story after everything, all four parts, have taken place. Or what some people might call in termini res. One of the key points here is that he actually survived until the end of the album. Which not all people think happened for reasons I will get into during part four of this talk. Cool. So much enthusiasm. Yeah. Never heard more from me, ever. Well, personally, I align more with the second and third narratives, though I am more inclined to agree with narrative number two. After that long sec analysis, let's actually move on to the second song, The Thin Ice. As I mentioned earlier, The Thin Ice is a narrative of Pink's infancy. It is a very synth or synthesizer heavy song, especially at the beginning, but a definitely more toned down song than In the Flesh two main things that I want to note here. First off, there is a lot of acoustic piano, and by this I just mean a normal sounding piano that you might think of whenever you think of piano, mm -hmm. rather than a synth or uh, organs that were usually used back in prog rock. Mm. Now in prog rock in particular, piano is generally associated with a softer and more kind of natural and nature uh, sound in general. Secondly, these lyrics are pretty damn bleak. Not only do you have the long, melancholic singing of lines like Ooh Baby Blue, but you then have a change in singer halfway through the song. This new singer basically talks about how modern life is quote-unquote thin ice, and don't be surprised when it cracks, you fall under and you're fearfully trying to claw your way back to the surface. Definitely not your usual lullaby. Seems like a Russian lullaby to me. Or a European fairy tale. Based on the water metaphors and some of the wordage in this song that I do not have the time to individually analyze, I know, for once, people yeah. generally take this as a metaphor for how Pink is going to lose his mind. And you know what? Fair enough. My Big same, bro. Yeah, my extremely limited experience in adulthood has also made me nearly lose my mind. That is just how it be, baby. This is what makes me nearly lose my mind. Yeah. Well, these quote-unquote cracks in the ice are also taken to be struggles that we have to deal with even if we didn't even ask for them. In Pink's case, his father is going to die in the next song, and that's just the beginning of his worries. <laughs> but I think we can all relate to having to deal with struggles and mental baggage that we had no hand in, whether it's a difficult family life, the death of a loved one, or even mental health issues in general. No one really asks for that stuff or even necessarily provokes it in these cases but they can still be extremely detrimental to one's mental health. So with that, we'll move on to the third song, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 1, 
This is pretty explicit in its message from the first two lines. Daddy's flown across the ocean, leaving just a memory. The electric guitar and synth at the start of the song leave me with what I can only describe as an ominous feeling. <laughs> and it's where this first metaphor of the wall really takes hold. The wall is all about self-isolation and putting up emotional and sometimes physical walls to keep other people and even one's own emotions at a distance. And what better time in American history to talk about physical walls and isolation than 2022? Ooh, aside from 2020. Actually, if the wall was modernized for a 2030-ish audience, there would almost definitely be at least two songs about COVID counting as a brick in the wall of isolation for uh, the character. But I digress. <laughs> as for the character Pink, the first real brick in his wall is his father's death. I know I said I wouldn't really be talking about the movie based off this album, but I think the imagery in this movie gives a really clear message. Throughout the song, you see young Pink wanting to play with all these other kids' dads and being rejected. He becomes more and more isolated until eventually he finds himself in the very relatable position of being alone on the swings. Alright, real quick, I'm just gonna make a really dumb comparison to the modern song Papa Ute by Stromae. I mean, the further we get into the wall, the more apt you might realize that comparison is. Einstein wishes he had what I have. I mean, I guess I should add in the caveat that it would be most apt if Stromae also turned into the guy who murdered his dad or was in charge of at least ordering the hit. But, you know, very similar themes in a lot of ways. Roger Waters actually commented about Pink's dad in particular, and according to Waters, a lot of this album and Pink's character mirrored his own life. In this case, Waters did confirm that both Pink's dad and his own were killed in World War II. I mean, a lot of people did die in World War II. I say probably mostly Russians and Germans, but, I mean, one of my great aunts died in a carpet bombing, so... I mean, your country was near the thick of things, so I'm not surprised, but, uh, case in point, I suppose. Yeah. Um, a lot of sentiments in the song, and the hole in his life left by his deceased father were actually parallel to Waters' own issues growing up. I wonder why they chose to make this album. What a mystery. Speaking of kids growing up, the ironically titled song, The Happiest Days of Our Lives, talks about the hell known as school. <laughs> It's important to realize that especially back in the 50s and 60s, British school systems, especially those around London, have been critiqued for focusing on basically churning out uniform model students. Hmm. A lot of those old movie cliches of a teacher humiliating a kid in class or slapping their hand with a ruler and whatnot were very par for the course in a lot of schools, especially in London. The lyrics to this one are a little bit dark as it's basically Pink fantasizing uh, that the teachers who mocked their students in the classroom would get beat within an inch of their lives by their wives. Probably the other way around, though. In reality, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, as for this, don't get me wrong, I was far from imagining pure sunshine and rainbows as a kid, but that's pretty dark, especially coming from someone who is in early elementary school. Have you met elementary school-aged kids? I mean, yes, and I would just put it more at middle school fantasies rather than elementary. Some of the wording would just make me a little bit concerned for this child, and I think going into further parts, justifiably so. As for the beat of this song, you start off hearing a helicopter and a military-esque voice, which mostly refers to the militization and uniformity of these schools uh, and what they pushed for, as well as the authoritarian states of the classrooms where the teachers had the first and final say in anything kids were and were not allowed to do. Mm. This militant structure is actually followed through the rest of the lyrics with a very uniform drum beat and singing rhythm. 
But after Pink fantasizes about these professors getting the same, if not crueler, treatment at the hands of their, quote, psychopathic wives... Mm, wow, that's very nice. Yeah. This militant drumbeat becomes more varied, as if the kids have triumphed over their teachers and are finally free knowing the abuse that the teachers suffer in turn. Mm. Uh, which, uh, catharsis, I guess. Now, these guitar riffs are also the same as those used in Another Brick in the Wall, which symbolizes how the horrendous school environment became even more bricks in this metaphorical wall that Pink was already building up. And if it wasn't already clear how much Pink hates his teachers, a teacher literally laughs maniacally for a good number of seconds after the lines of a teacher exposing every weakness, however carefully hidden by the kids. Ah, well, so that means that kids bullying each other is just making it easier for the teachers to do this. Uh, it also incentivized the teachers to do more bullying, because what is more affirming than maniacally laughing children? Hmm. But, with no room for pause, Happiest Days of Our Lives jumps right into Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which is arguably the most well-known song in the Walls album. Or at least, the only one I really heard references to throughout my time in middle and high school, which could be coming from a biased sample. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 basically continues this theme of Happiest Days of Our Lives, but it is actually the music video and the movie video that are most interesting. In the movie, at least, the song really starts when Pink is ridiculed by his teacher in front of the entire class for writing poetry. Is this like a nerd situation or a you're not paying attention situation? It's more played out as the nerd one. Hmm. Which, you know... Great way for me to hate a teacher right off the bat. It's mm. the one where the teacher will read your note right in front of the entire class. Which, no matter how that's played off, probably not okay. <laughs> yeah. And I should mention quickly that this is after some imaginary faceless children being taken away on a crowded train. Which I can see two themes from. One interpretation could be that this train of kids represents the trains that took British soldiers to their military camps, thus driving home the militant nature of these schools. But a second interpretation is far darker, but I feel like it was partially intentional, especially given that it is a train crowded with faceless children headed into a dark tunnel, ultimately turned into a meat grinder. There is definitely a darker side of World War II that I don't fully want to go into that I think is being referenced there. But the one thing about this song that I did fail to grasp as a kid was that it isn't about bashing the idea of being educated. It's rather bashing how these kids are being educated. There's no room for artistic creativity or individualism, which could not be more apparent by the visual of kids with virtually featureless faces in blank orifices standing on a conveyor belt and getting dropped into a meat grinder and becoming uniform patties. Which, first off, is rather disturbing to see, even if it is, like, 1980s-sums visual effects. <laughs> but it also just drives home the message of the song itself about abusive teachers pushing for uniformity among students and the resulting trauma becoming more bricks in the wall. Wow, I can't believe people noticed this so long ago, and absolutely nothing has been done. Not true. Now you have the occasionally hired school counselor, which clearly fixes all of those problems. I feel like our counselors were just glorified administrators. Oh, absolutely. My elementary school had an actually good psychologist, but that is the only example I can think of, and let me tell you, that did not stop the rapid bullying. I thought they weren't supposed to stop the bullying, but more just tell the kids, like, oh, turn the other cheek. If you don't respond, then the bully will stop. Uh, that is a very common tactic, yes. And it does not work. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on from that, the last song is Mother. This has a lot of layers to it, but given that this script is already nine pages, I'll have to cut quite a bit down. 
And once again, I wish the audience could see my expression at this moment. I think you can tell enough by the vocal intonations. Yeah, I did my best to convey it. You did lovely. Thanks. Now then, this song is basically about overprotective mothers in a duet between Think, voiced by Roger Waters, and his mother, voiced by the guitarist and co-lead vocalist David Gilmour. Nearly every line that Pink says in this duet start with mother as he asks for his mother's advice and approval. Some are very reminiscent of World War II and Cold War fears like, do you think they'll drop the bomb? And a lot of them, though, ask his mother what she thinks he should do with his life. Will people like the songs that he writes? Uh, should he run for president? Or is the government even an entity that he can trust? No. The mother replies reassuringly. If the line, Mama's gonna make all your nightmares come true, is at all comforting. <laughs> what these parts get at are how overprotective parents instill fears and thoughts into their kids, particularly by sheltering them from the world and doing a lot of the having lifting, you know, for said kids. Whether it is subconsciously acting irrationally upon their fears, or, as the song continues to talk about, pre-screening Pink's girlfriends, constantly monitoring his location 24-7, these obviously unhealthy behaviors make Pink dependent upon his mother and keep him from being prepared for the real world, as well as unable to really grow into himself and develop a sense of individuality. Ah, yes, the problems with helicopter parenting. In a nutshell, yes. Yeah, I think I had a friend who described, like, like, it wasn't helicopter parenting, but it was, like, making the way smooth for, like, their kids. So it's kind of, like, more that they're, like, the sheltering part. Mm -hmm. And she called them lawnmower parents. <laughs> That's actually rather hilarious. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's pretty apt, man. Once you get out into those wild weeds by yourself, good luck. Mm-hmm. As an interesting tidbit, Roger Waters actually once commented that shortly after he released this song, one of his co-workers came up and told him how the song made her realize how much she had been sheltering her kids and how harmful it actually could be for her to do that. It is insane to see the impact that songs like this can have on people. The style of Mother mixes a dark and gloomy tone with that of a nursery rhyme or lullaby, much like the first few songs that we talked about. That obviously accentuates the dark nature of what the mother thinks is just being a good mother and protecting her child. And again, to be fair to the mother in the story, she did lose her husband in the war, and Pink is her only child, so you can understand why she was so overprotective, even if it ended up hurting Pink more than it helped him. The final line of this song is also really interesting, as Pink asks, Mother didn't need to be so high. This denotes a change from Pink's childhood to a quote-unquote present tense. This could be interpreted as the change from his childhood presented in side one to his young adulthood presented in side two, or it could lead more credence to people's belief that this album is Pink having flashbacks to his past. People also theorize what the it in this lyric means. What was it to be so high? Some people say his mother's expectations. Others say it represents just the harshness of life in general. And others still say it's the wall that Pink ended up building, in part because of his mother, whom he still blames for that. I personally agree most with the last theory, which is also the most accepted. So, with that final line, there you have it. The beginning of the wall with Pink's childhood trauma in all of its glory. Oh, wow, yay. You have three more of these that you are mandatorily supposed to be here for, so... I'm aware. <laughs> for the rest of you... I will be back in two weeks with part two of this series, which will hopefully be a fair bit shorter, since I won't need to explain the backstory of Pink Floyd in prog rock. Well, I sure hope so. And maybe a little bit less sarcasm from this one. Just so you know, a lot of this was theatrical. I fully support you, even if I 
know nothing about music and are an absolute heathen. Yes. Yes. With that, I guess we will see you next time, folks. Yeehaw!